There are some individuals that we come across that inspire us, lift our spirits, and lead us into directions that we never knew we were capable of. These individuals can sometimes inspire us to even lay down our lives in the proposition of achieving something much larger than ourselves. For some of us, if we're so lucky, have these individuals in our family. They're the ones who give the terrific speeches at the weddings or the birthdays. And then there are individuals in our society called upon to give keynote speeches. Sometimes they're politicians, sometimes they're business people. And often these people give a commencement speech. At Stanford University, the commencement speech is given in June. In recent years, the university's football stadium, home of the champions, serves as the location for the graduating class who sit upon fold-up chairs on the grass of the pitch and their parents behind them on the bleachers of the stadium. They're poised like throngs of football fans waiting for the most wonderful of games to start at last. The great game that will see their children triumph or meanly lose the quest to make themselves the successes that they strive and so dearly wish to be. On June 12, 2005, one of the most shining examples of a modern incarnation of the self-made man was there to deliver the commencement speech that day. The college dropout, Steve Jobs. I want to quote from that commencement speech just to provide some highlights as to not only the makings of Steve Jobs from his perspective, but the makings of what we think of as the self-made man. What goes into creating that self-incarnation of a success, according to Steve Jobs? And from that, I hope to provide a little bit of a broader historical perspective of where this notion of a self-made man actually came from. So Steve Jobs up on the stadium there to deliver the commencement speech, and uh, I quote, I was lucky. I found what I love to do in life. Was and I started Apple in my parents' garage when I was 20. We worked hard, and in 10 years, Apple had grown from just the two of us in a garage into a $2 billion company with over 4,000 employees. We had just released our finest creation, the Macintosh, just a year earlier, and I had just turned 30. And then I got fired. Steve continues a little later to say, I would quote, I was a very public failure, and I even thought about running away from the valley, but something slowly began to dawn on me. I still loved what I did. The turn of events at Apple had not changed that one bit. I'd been rejected, but I still, but I was still in love, and so I decided to start over. I didn't see it then, but it turned out that getting fired from Apple was the best thing that could ever happen to me. And a little later uh, in his speech, another extract I wanted to quote from. Quote, Remember that, Remembering that I'll be dead soon is the most important tool I've ever encountered to help me make those big choices in life. Because almost everything, 
all external expectations, all pride, all fear of embarrassment or failure, these things just fall away in the face of death, leaving only that which is truly important. Remembering that you are going to die is the best way I know to avoid the trap of thinking that you have something to do, something to lose. You are already naked. There is no reason not to follow your heart. A little later, quote, Your time is limited, so don't waste it living someone else's life. Don't be trapped by dogma, which is living with the results of other people's thinking. Don't let the noise of other opinions drown out your own inner voice, and most important, have the courage to follow your heart and intuition. They somehow already know what you truly want to become. Everything else is secondary. End quote. Job describes his life as an actualization of potential, because he found that thing that he loved. The curiosity and vision to recognize opportunity in Jobs' case, was a passion for his work. This love transcended hardship and crystallized his unique individuality as defined by that thing that he loved, the design of Apple. Now, shifting a little, shifting about 150 years, Abraham Lincoln also was called upon to inspire and deliver speeches of hope and inspiration. As a young man, Lincoln sought to improve his oration and debating skills as a member of the Lyceum and Temperance Movements, which often focused on the themes of aspiration and self-improvement. Lincoln, like Jobs, was not a university graduate, and Lincoln, like Jobs, was very much a self-made man. And so this process of self-creation provided a huge substance to inspire others, and Lincoln, as well as Jobs, continued to do so. I myself personally have been inspired by both these individuals who are giants of self-creation. At the heart of Lincoln, most of Lincoln's speeches and addresses was a belief in the potential of an individual and the importance of equal opportunity, that opportunity exists and is there for the taking, and it is there for the taking equally for all Americans. That was the underpinning of uh, much of Lincoln's ideology and much of that which he chose to inspire others. Much of the substance of his speeches were about that promise, which he believed, I'm sure, down to his own experience and his own ability to reach for and achieve opportunity. By all indications from his background and hardship, his hard-tack existence, opportunity was far from reachable. Abe took what was written in the Declaration of Independence as a treatise for living life, and it, he took it very much to heart, eventually embodying its precepts in his own experience. When he was president, he spoke to a regiment of soldiers, for example, camped at the White House to make clear that he himself was proof of the principles of equal opportunity by saying, quote, I happen temporarily to occupy this big White House, I am a living witness that any one of your children may look to come here as my father's child has. End quote. If Abraham Lincoln was to deliver that commencement speech at Stanford University, he would have talked about opportunity in America. His most defining talent and gift for principled leadership was that ability to ennoble a collective cause. As part of his political campaigning, Lincoln often chose state fairs to connect with his voters, connecting over circumstances which he himself is probably all too familiar, 
circumstances of hardship and resilience on the frontier. On one such occasion at the Wisconsin State Fair, just after the presentation of farm prizes, as you can just imagine what that might look like, you know, the, the, biggest, uh, the biggest pumpkin or the, uh, the, uh, the fittest oxen, he uh, stepped up and came forward and offered some advice to those who were lucky enough to win and those who were unfortunate to lose. I have a quote here. Quote, While occasions like the present bring their sober and durable benefits, the exultation and mortifications of them are but temporary, and that the victor shall soon be vanquished if he relaxes exertions, and that the vanquished this year may be the victor next. End quote. You see, for Lincoln, success was inherently tied to suffering. It was in the doing and the freedom to pursue happiness that fired Lincoln's ambitions and fueled his passions for self-improvement through education. It was the freedom to pursue happiness, which was the point. You know, we think of the Constitution, uh, the American Constitution, as the uh, enshrinement of the freedom to pursue happiness and that the attainment of happiness therefore is the point but certainly that wasn't the point for Lincoln it was just solely the freedom to pursue that happiness so I think it was this acceptance of suffering as part of the success cycle uh, his acceptance of suffering and hardship as just a just part and parcel of the mix that goes into a successful person but there was also something about Lincoln himself that was just a bit, just a bit different. Just something about his character. Uh, let's not fool ourselves. I mean, there is the uh, the acceptance of of hardship and the ability to to soldier on, but that doesn't uh, bring us to the presidency of the United States. There's something about Lincoln. The historian Douglas Wilson notes that growing up, Lincoln was quote different from those around him. He knew he was unusually gifted and had great potential, end quote. And this despite his crushing poverty. Dressed as his stepmother remarked, quote, as an ordinary boy from my poor backwoods family with a gap between his shoes, socks, and pants that often exposed six or more inches of his shin, end quote. In the eyes of Clay's classmates like Nathaniel Grigsby, quote, Abe soared above us. He naturally assumed the leadership of the boys. He read and thoroughly read his books whilst we played. Hence, he was above us and became our guide and our leader. End quote. Abe was, quote, clearly gifted and had great potential, noted Lincoln biographer David Donald. He goes on to say, quote, and he carried away from his brief schooling the self-confidence of a man who has never met his intellectual equal, end quote. Lincoln's yearning for knowledge sprang first from his home, where night after night he was trained to listen long after going to bed to those stories told by the adults around the evening firelight. You can imagine back then when there wasn't any TV or internet, people would sit up and talk. Lincoln's household, there would be some little man, little boy, listening. He'd recall decades later that nothing was more upsetting to him than his inability to understand everything that was being told. Adults being adults, sometimes you need a adult de-encryption ring, really, to understand what's going on. But Lincoln would recall how he would spend no, quote, no small part of the night walking up and down and trying to make out what the exact meaning of some of their, to me, dark sayings, end quote. 
Perhaps the greatest gift his father Thomas bequeathed his son was his talent for storytelling. He may have been amazed to know that his stories were being retold according to Abe the following day at school, quote, in a language plain enough as I thought for any boy I knew to comprehend, end quote. The gift for storytelling would follow Abe through his entire life and be a defining feature of his endearing character. The process of self-education brought with it a degree of isolation for Abe and self-imposed alienation. As a boy, partial to reading was more often than not seen as idle, someone who's lazy. For example, Denny Hanks, who was otherwise uh, would hold young Lincoln in high esteem, said of Lincoln, quote, Abe was lazy, a very lazy man. He was always reading, scribbling, writing, ciphering, writing poetry, end quote. It's a testament to Lincoln's burning ambition and thirst for knowledge that he set out to teach himself law during a time when a mere 5% of men did non-manual labor. As a start, he began to read statute texts. As the Lincoln biographer Richard Lawrence Miller noted, quote, an uncommon activity among his neighbors, the edition of Indiana statutes he used contained the Declaration of Independence, Ordinance of 1787, and the U.S. Constitution, three documents that would eventually intertwine intimately with his life, end quote. Early on, he sought to study law with John Pitcher, a lawyer that had been impressed by Lincoln's writings, but his father, Tom Lincoln, told him that he was needed too urgently for other tasks. These tasks might include the tiresome chores of felling trees, digging up stumps, splitting rails, plowing, weeding, and planting. You can imagine what farm life would have been like on the on the frontier. Tom Lincoln was also known to, to hire Lincoln out to, to other people and take his pay. According to historian Doris Kearns Goodwin, quote, When he found his son in the field reading a book, or worse still, distracting fellow workers with tales or passages of one of his books, he would angrily halt the activity so the work would continue. The boy's endeavors to better himself often incurred the resentment of his father, who occasionally destroyed his books and may have physically abused him. End quote. The evidence indicates that Lincoln was not only unsupported by his studies, but reminiscences and anecdotal evidence suggests that Lincoln was in significant distress and mental anguish during this time, during this pursuit of law. And this pursuit, again, was not under the tutelage of a, of a university program. This was completely independent. It was more common then uh, than it is today. But still, as I said, there was only 5% of people who would do non-manual labor. So this was, this is really something that was quite un unusual and incredibly ambitious. You know, edu edu educators will tell you that to learn and to understand, you need to build, you need to have a basis of, of knowledge that you can scaffold onto. And so guides and teachers will help you through that process of scaffolding knowledge so you can have more depth, more depth and understanding. Lincoln didn't have any of that. One can only imagine the effort that would go into bringing yourself out of that, the depths of ignorance of the frontier at that time. He, quote, read hard day and night terribly hard, end quote, remembered Isaac Cogdell. In the summer of 1835, the schoolteacher mentor Graham recalled that Lincoln, quote, somewhat injured his health and constitution, end quote. And according to the local farmer Henry 
McHenry, quote, he became emaciated. He goes on to say, quote, his friends were afraid that he would craze himself, end quote. So we've got a lot of evidence of a young man who was going through hell to get this law um, qualification. In spite of all of this mental toll, in September of 1837, Lincoln passed the bar exam and became a lawyer, and then moved to Springfield soon after. The Springfield being the new capital of Illinois, and there he became the law partner of John Todd Stewart, the Whig leader of the country, as a, as a matter of fact. Steve Jobs also recognized extraordinary individuals, great leaders, become beacons of realized potential that we can look upon and get inspiration from. Because sometimes a, a lucky constellation of interests and individuals arise from that fog of happenstance. You get lucky. In his case, happenstance came in the form of a, of a fantastic partner he was lucky enough to meet and and Steve Wozniak. Lucky or not, it takes the envision and the ambition to see the opportunity and translate it into success, however. And that's the difference. Steve Jobs recognized he was lucky, but Steve Jobs also was able to have the charisma, those ingredients that make for the ability to make friends. Make friends with Steve Wozniak. To have the, the vision to hold Steve Wozniak's attention and inspire both of them with this idea of creating a personal computer, the Macintosh. You know, in these podcasts, I'm talking about leadership and principled leadership. I'm looking at Lincoln's life. Some of us might be listening to, to podcasts like this with a, with a sense of discovering what it is that, that makes a successful leader. So, they themselves might uh, improve as leaders, or what is it that uh, makes for a successful person in general? And uh, I think that it's it can be humbling as a leader to recognize that there is some luck that goes into the the mixing pot that made them who they are. It's uh, it takes some humility to say, "Yeah, I got lucky." But on the other hand, they got lucky, but they had the vision and they had the wherewithal to connect an opportunity, a lucky opportunity with some success. You know, those of us who are looking for inspiration to improve ourselves can sometimes find ourselves thinking that there might be something wrong with us. But we have lived through a very trying time as well. We've lived just through a, a financial crisis, for example. Before that, there was a, a dot-com. There was a property bust. So there, there's plenty of unlucky circumstances, and I think it's important to recognize what we can achieve, what we can change as individuals, and that which we can't, beyond our control. But when opportunity does come knocking, have the wherewithal to recognize it, connect it. I think that would uh, that would be a piece of advice that both Steve Jobs and Lincoln would uh, would impart. I should imagine. So, like Steve Jobs, Abraham Lincoln was also lucky. Young Abraham Lincoln, uh, during the 1830s, grew up at a time that experienced what came to be called the Jacksonian boom. Jacksonian, uh, based on the the 
American president at the time, Andrew Jackson. The Jacksonian boom precipitated a great western migration, settlements in what was then the frontier, primarily the Midwestern states, and it reached its zenith between 1832 and 1836, precisely the time in which Lincoln's family came to Illinois, came to the Midwest. Abraham spent his youth in New Salem, and then his arrival in Springfield as a newly minted lawyer is precisely at the zenith of this, of this Jacksonian boom. Imagine Lincoln's experience had there been a, a, a dearth of opportunity. Lincoln not had the chance to cut his teeth as a lawyer. If there was no openings at the, at the partnership with uh, John Todd Stewart, for example, then what? What would happen to his history? It takes, it takes opportunity in the engine of development of a leader to create that substance, to create that momentum. Lincoln got lucky. His timing couldn't have been luckier. And migration in and of itself is often an ingredient for the spark of an entrepreneurial endeavor. It seems to come from these great migrations. Just it's a big melting pot of ideas, as well as desperation and aspiration. Things need to happen for these people on the move. In the landmark 1975 study, Albert Shapiro writes that, quote, Research finds that most entrepreneurs are displaced persons who've been dislodged from a comfortable, safe situation. Some are literal displaced persons, such as political refugees, but most common are people fired from their jobs or deprived of an opportunity to advance in their jobs. End quote. That great American westward migration that Lincoln was swept up in was the first of several entrepreneurial-infused movements created aspirations of the displaced that became part of a North American business fabric. If you look at Steve Jobs and his experience of being fired from, from Apple, for example, had him redouble, re-spark his, his entrepreneurial drive. Prior to that, he had, he had dropped out of college, as he discussed in, him, in his commencement speech at Stanford University. He wasn't a a college graduate. He started uh, in, in college, um, but left. Left from, from disinterest and, and interests that lay elsewhere. But he left, and with that was a, a displacement of sorts. Lincoln, on the other hand, was moving physically. He was, he was moving from Kentucky to Illinois, then finally to, to New Salem. So that movement in and of itself creates a, a need to strike the anvil of opportunity. And migration and the opportunities, the entrepreneurial spirit that derives from that migration has really been part of the, the American experience since its inception. Other countries... In North America, Canada being a prime example, Australia as well were, were uh, destinations for migrants who, out of their own sheer determination and desperation and aspiration, created, created a, an entrepreneurial environment that uh, soared and created great success for these individuals, as well as hardship. Or perhaps 
because of hardship. And in this environment of movement, and chaos, and opportunity, the, this notion that opportunity and the realization of fortune, which might come like a lightning strike, broiled under the surface, created a, an antidote to the disillusionment that simmered with the monotony of an agricultural existence. Things were moving. Something was on the move. For many people, the hope and joy that lay in the existence of personal pursuits offered circuit from the realities of the frontier. This was a time where the industry was providing specialization for individuals. The frontier was otherwise far too heavy to, to bear for a, for a young aspiring person. The frontier existence was usually short, brutish, and often violent. An existence which threatened to lead in the hearts of a, of a young person whose wick had been lit by the sound and the fury of the revolution just a generation before, and by those works of the enlightened free think thinkers who promised to free them from the crushing drudgery of an unremarkable farming life. This was it. This was their, their opportunity. Carpe diem. Seize the moment. They were ready. They believed in the promise of this new America. A tantalizing taste of sudden entrepreneurial success came to Lincoln when he was a teenager working a skiff on the Ohio River. He happened one day to row two men out to a large boat that awaited them on the river. Instead of an expected two bits for payment, one of the men tossed him two silver half dollars. He says years later, quote, I could scarcely believe my eyes, end quote. Lincoln was recounting the story when he was president. Goes on to say, quote, "Gentlemen, you may think it was a very little thing, but it was a most important incident in my life. I could scarcely credit that I, a poor boy, had earned a dollar in less than a day. The world seemed wider and fairer to me." End quote. You know, today we place a lot of value. We put a lot of value and cachet and mental energy into this idea of the self-made person. You know achieving success without the indulgence of hereditary assistance or parentage or part of being in the in crowd or whatever it is that provided success to to those who who weren't endowed with otherwise just grit and talent and and that can-do attitude it became and has continues to be a defining characteristic of the american character and the entrepreneurial capitalist character is very much underpinned by this idea of a self-made person. These ideas of uh, individual and the self-made ethic actually originated during this time of the Jacksonian boom. You know, previously we had the Enlightenment and this growing sense of individualism, and the, the underwriting of the Constitution, which talked about the individual pursuit of, 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 of happiness and the unalienable right of an individual to, to pursue that happiness. But it really wasn't until the Jacksonian boom got some traction that individuals and icons of the self-made ethic were being produced. And this Jacksonian boom appeared at a time when a whole new set of roles entered into the emerging American market economy. Roles which were far different from the agri agrarian society, which had uh, up until that point been the 
staple of American existence, American life. This, these new occupational opportunities transformed not only Lincoln personally, but American society as a whole, and with it the rise of an American entrepreneurial culture. The ideas around individualism, quote-unquote individualism, were new to the world and uniquely American. In 1835, the traveling French author de Toitville observed individualism as he found it in America as, quote, a calm and considered feeling which supposes each citizen to isolate himself from the mass of his fellows, end quote. He noted that, quote, aristocracy links everybody from peasant to king in one long chain. Democracy breaks the chain and frees each link, end quote. So this is 1835. Someone uh, visiting the uh, Toitvoy outside of America, a visitor, a tourist, intellectual in his own right, but a tourist, making an, an observation and really defining what defining what individualism is and connecting that sense of individualism with this with this emerging democracy the birth of individualism then the birth of democracy and the birth of an entrepreneurial market driven economy was really born out of this time and many young men were fired by by an exuberance there was this overwhelming tide of literature that emanated first from the founding fathers and free thinkers uh, and created this culture of of self-help uh, and uh, which we can find modern roots back to this time as well take for example the excerpt from the Illinois journal entitled quote-unquote how to succeed and I'll read from that article quote push along push hard push earnestly you can't do without it. The world is so made, society is so constructed, that it's a law of necessity that you must push. Who succeeds? Who makes money, honor, and reputation? He who heartily, sincerely, manfully pushes, and he alone. He never knew a man in the world who was a light, smart pusher, who finally did not become rich, respectable, wise, and useful. End quote. And this is from a, from a newspaper. And you can see that it's it's dated to the to the language of the time, but it really echoes what we see today in terms of that you can do it kind of attitude that kind of underpins a lot of the the self help literature out there. This endowment of a personal individual freedom brought with it both a fantastic array of possibilities to a young man at that time, as well as its corollary, the perils of personal failure. You know, now we have a society that uh, provides opportunities for an individual to make himself a self-made person. And so we also have the, the society, the ingredients, the mix in, our, in the culture to create failure. And failure which is a personal responsibility. The failure of, a, of an individual to succeed to achieve, to attain that which is there for the taking. The American dream, so to speak, is there for the taking for those who have the hard work, the tact, the discipline, the talent and perseverance to, to attain. And so if they don't, then it becomes a, a personal 
a personal failure, not a failure of the economy or the society at large, but now it's the responsibility of the individual not only to succeed, but also to fail. As this historian Scott Sendaji explains that the phrase, quote, unquote, I feel like a failure, is a figure of speech. He says, quote, it's a figure of speech in the language of business applied to the soul, end quote. And so the people of the 19th century, fueled by this emerging sense of selfhood, believed that people who failed had an inherent problem that reflected their, their constitution. They were, quote-unquote, born failures. Well, as Steve Jobs alluded to himself in his commencement speech, he became a public failure. Quote, unquote, a public failure. As though failure, like success, is a self-made thing and part of the fabric of the individual, and so is the, that failure, if, if one is so inclined. It's not about luck. Though success can be well attained through luck, failure is not. We're suspicious of a person who says that they failed because of, of, uh, of bad luck. Something else. It's something about them. And this is, this is the dark side. This is the shadow side of the, the great opportunity, the, the exuberance and the possibilities. The dark side is there's failure. There's, there's failure and with it a huge problem in, in terms of mental health and despair and depression. This endowment of personal individual freedoms brought with it both a fantastic array of possibilities to a young man as well as the peril of personal failure. While Lincoln was a congressman in Washington in 1848, his young law partner, William Herden, once asked him advice on how to succeed. And uh, after reflecting, Lincoln said, quote, The way for a young man to rise is to improve himself every way he can. End quote. But for Lincoln, self-improvement meant the combination of hard work and single-minded, unwavering pursuit of knowledge. He goes on to say to his law partner, quote, You have been a laborious, studious young man. You cannot fail in any laudable object unless you allow your mind to be improperly directed, end quote. In those days... As, as well as today, in, in no small part, uh, it's believed that a, a young person uh, can achieve um, by their own grit and determination. And a young man need not, need not to depend on his family, needn't rely on his friends, doesn't even have to go to school. The surest way for a man to succeed, from Lincoln's perspective, was simply to improve himself. And with that, there was a great belief and hope and an optimism for a society that could uh, reward an individual for, for that grit and determination without the favor of, of friends and family. Uh, and this, this, uh, this is a belief that uh, underpinned um, much of the 19th century self-help, the entrepreneurial spirit, uh, and the optimism that created opportunities, that created that dyna dynamic economic circumstance. And there were victims as well as, as, well as uh, victors. There were losers as well as winners. So this was a time where 
the power of of the press, the the times in which the economy was opening up, different roles and possibilities were opening up for individuals. Farm boys were becoming uh, rich. You know, the, the the idea of inheritance was no longer the the sole road to personal success and wealth. The opportunities were were opening up, and it was a hugely exciting time. But it was also a time where there was both winners as well as losers. You know, there was gigantic tidal wave of exuberance, these these self-help articles in the newspapers and so on that created this just roaring sense of opportunity and, and advancement, and with it a, a, a boom in the economy. Um, had the corollary effect as well of, of um, great failure. And person this sense of personal responsibility for that failure was daunting. You know, I think about, uh, you know, I get a kick at watching those old black and white films of people trying to uh, show off their flying in, in, inventions. I know I know, flying and the, the craze that went along with it was sometimes after Abraham Lincoln and that and that time but it it had sort of that that sense of a, a kind of a, a 19th century sense of of kind of deluded optimism I guess you know people jumping off bridges with homemade wings made of made of, made of goose feathers I don't know you know there's a, a favorite film that I that I watched and rewatched, um, called the assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford, and that has an as a an account of Robert Ford meeting Jesse James's brother, the train robber Frank James. We got this this Ford kind of saddling himself up to Frank. He's got the the top the black top hat and uh, I'll do my very best to do a characterization of the the film you'll have to forgive me as I'm not an actor but uh, just if if you can get the sense of that kind of ignorant exuberance that I'm trying to get at and so here we go quote folks sometimes take me for a nincompoop on account of the shabby first impressions I make whereas I've always thought of myself as being just a rung down from the James Brothers. And I was hoping if I ran into you, aside from those Packer Woods, I was hoping I could show you just how special I am. I honestly believe I'm destined for great things, Mr. James. I've got qualities that don't come shining through right at the outset, but give me a chance and I'll get the job done. I guarantee you that. End quote. So once it so you can just imagine this character kind of springing up the, from the farm fields of the frontier back then. I think it's just a, a fantastic kind of allusion to that kind of of ignorant farm boy kind of starry-eyed opportunism that was that was rife back then. You know, you had people like Ralph Waldo Emerson saying, "Hit your wagon on a star," and the the um, transcendentalists who you know were underpinning this this sense of of in opportunism and and 
optimism that was just overflowing during this period. This was the age of great new American possibilities, which special things would happen for those who are quote-unquote destined, as Robert Ford would say. And in the case of Robert Ford, he was first a thief and then a killer of Jesse James, destined to become, well, a personal failure. According to the historian Joyce Appleby, who traces this period, and I think um, encapsulates a lot of a lot of this ideology and, and psychology that was going on at that at that time. He says, quote, "The range and sweep of enterprise in this period are awesome, suggesting the widespread willingness to be uprooted, to embark on an uncharted course course of action." take risks with one's resources, and above all, the resources of one's youth itself, end quote. While the vast majority of individuals remain close to the family farm, a few enterprising individuals defined by what it meant to be, quote-unquote, successful in America. They did this by what Appleby says here, and I'll, I'll quote him again, quote, shifting of loyalties from home and habit to self and progress, end quote. These individuals, like later on Steve Jobs and other captains of industry, these individuals were self-made. They were men that were inspired and persevered despite hardship, believed in themselves and their intuition despite forces of conformity. It was in this climate of opportunity that was first born out of the 19th century, in this Jacksonian boom. It was in this climate of opportunity that the ideas of the, the Founding Fathers came to bloom, came to, to, to meet and bloom in its full fruition. The notion that all men have equal opportunity to realize liberty, liberty and happiness was a God-given right, and for those with the ambition to pursue it, it was there for the taking. It is difficult to describe the climate of the prevailing attitudes Lincoln came to view uh, and in measured, sober tones. To read Lincoln speak about the quote-unquote great struggle of life, end quote, can, one can't help but feel the heaviness of enthusiasm. So great was this belief in the promise that America presented to all, to everyone equally. Let's leave the slave's question aside for now. It's difficult to leave the slave question it's difficult to talk about this exuberance in these heady times when a large section, a large population within America wasn't considered free. It was hardly considered human, even. Lincoln believed, though, that success was there for those who endured failures and who could plod along despite his, quote-unquote, severe experience. For Lincoln, it was the pursuit and not so much the attainment of happiness that was central to his personal view, as I've mentioned. Lincoln educated himself, worked hard, and succeeded above all, he be believed, because he lived in a country that allowed for it. Lincoln saw that the impediments in that pursuit, even when self-imposed, were tantamount to a form of safe slavery of the spirit and mind, writing that, quote, it is very probable, almost certain, that the great mass of men at the time were utterly unconscious that their condition or their minds were capable of improvement. They not only looked upon the educated few as superior beings, but they supposed themselves to be naturally incapable of rising to equality. 
Lincoln goes on to say, it is difficult for us now and here to conceive how strong this slavery of the mind was, and how long it did of necessity take to break its shackles and to get a habit of freedom of thought established. End quote. This access to opportunity and self-fulfillment of one's inner potential is what our modern entrepreneurial now embodies. Lincoln might well suggest that Steve Jobs reflects the success and the wealth made available available by the proceeds of a check written by the Founding Fathers, and there for all Americans, black or white, rich or poor, to cash, as reflected in the remarks he made to the Young Men's Lyceum of Springfield, Illinois, on January 27, 1838, when he said, quote, We find ourselves in the peaceful possession of the fairest portion of the earth, as regards extent of territory, fertility of soil, and celebrity of climate, end quote. Lincoln believed that it was the duty of each American to accept the, quote, task of gratitude to our fathers, justice to ourselves, duty to prosperity, and love for our species in general, end quote. And it's interesting that he was talking about the mind and the enslavement of the mind during a time in which slavery was so much a part of the southern economy and so much a part of the underlying political divide that was beginning to brew. The Lyceum address was delivered shortly after the recent burning of a Negro in St. Louis a few weeks before and provided a backdrop to the occasion and subtext to Lincoln's remarks. It was a speech that was later published in the Sagamon Journal and contributed to the young man's emerging reputation which would soon extend beyond the limits of the locality in which he lived. And while the slavery issue would soon come to define him in political terms, the driving force behind his words, behind Lincoln himself, was that opportunity exists for those who pursue it. It must exist in equal proportions to slave and non-slave alike. The extent to which Lincoln at this time believed that that opportunity should be extended to slaves in the same way it was extended to white men uh, is questionable, but this notion of equal opportunity was there on the brew. Lincoln, to a large extent, had come to be defined by the emancipation of the slaves, but moreover his principles of opportunity not only extended to these slaves consequentially, it galvanized the ambitions and optimism of all his constituents into a fierce support for freedom that came to fuel a very American sense of entitlement. Part of Lincoln's enduring legacy is the perception he endowed into his fellow Americans that they are the rightful heirs to, in a pursuit of success and happiness and opportunity exists. Opportunity exists for those willing to endure. Lincoln's message at the Lyceum was that emancipation of the slaves was a consequence of a much grander inheritance and right of all American citizens. This right to pursue one's individual sense of happiness and success not only fueled and ennobled the cause of the American North over the South, but continued on as a premise of the American character, an ingredient for the development of the innovative and entrepreneurial spirit that endures today. For Lincoln, success was inherently tied to suffering. It was in the doing and the freedom to pursue happiness that fired Lincoln's ambitions and fueled his passion for self-improvement. If he were to deliver a commencement speech in this day, he would no doubt extend similar encouragement 
that education is the key to self-improvement. You might also point out, knowing how magnanimous and humble Abraham Lincoln was, you might also point out to that graduating class that on the acceptance of his presidency in 1861, he had, quote, one term in the lower house of Congress, end quote, that uh, would appear on his resume. He had barely a year of formal education, he had few connections in the capital, and had no executive experience whatsoever. Lincoln brought himself up by the bootstraps, overcoming a very harsh and severe frontier existence to become a self-made man. The epitome and perhaps the first and most recognizable embodiment of the American entrepreneurial spirit we still see very much alive today. A spirit rooted deeply in what was in Lincoln's time a very new and revolutionary notion of entrepreneurship, individualism, and a republican form of government. It was a new society driven by individual voices providing the inspiration for freedom for the people as expressed by those individuals, just like Steve Jobs and you, my listener, who are of the people. <laughs>